Hello and welcome to Future Proof Folk, the podcast where we chat to fascinating people working on exciting projects which keep the folk music scene in England moving forward, growing and generally staying amazing. I'm Owen Ralph. One of the things I've kept coming back to over the past few episodes is re-examining this notion of folk, pondering what it is, where its edges might be, and if these questions even have any consequence, and then how all that will affect what the folk arts look like in the future. To dig deeper into that, I'm joined this episode by Lucy Wright, an artist and researcher who has just released a new book exploring 21st century folk art. In the first half of the podcast, we discuss Lucy's book and the ideas behind it, before a discussion of Carnival Morris leads us on to a wider discussion of some of the big questions all of this poses. Well, Lucy, thank you for joining me. No worries. Tell us a bit about who you are. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, I'm Lucy Wright. I'm an artist and researcher based in Leeds. I have a number of jobs at the moment. I'm currently speaking from the University of Leeds where I'm working as a research fellow on a project about cultural participation and the rest of the week I work for an arts charity called Axis Web looking at socially engaged art practices. In any free time that I have I I, I try to do my art uh, and write stuff. So talking of art and writing stuff you have this beautiful new book which is (laughs) out very shortly. Yeah 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 21st century folk art. So it's basically the kind of culmination of about I mean I think I've said seven years but actually it's more like 10 years. I realised with a kind of alarm but um, it's it's this year 10 years since I started my PhD and my PhD was looking at sort of contemporary folk customs and traditions uh, and I was I did my PhD in an art school because my interest was in using uh, arts practice as a kind of research method. So yeah, I have this body of artwork, a body of research, of writing, of photographs, of, of objects that I've made, uh, all of which you know are to, towards answering this question of what, what is folk today? What do we mean by folk? What role does tradition play in our lives? Because I think there are a lot of assumptions about what folk is, how it might look, you know, the general aesthetic of folk and I wanted to sort of challenge that or at least to really get into it and unpick it about what what does this thing mean and so yeah the the 21st century folk art book is bringing together a whole bunch of different projects uh, that I've done you know mostly over the last seven years but beginning with an idea 10 years ago and you've got the subtitle social art and as research What, what do you mean by that so I suppose my interest in art or what I what I believe about art is that art is a form of research in its own right and I mean that in a number of ways I guess that artists uh, have always conducted research as part of the practice that they do that there are things that are difficult to articulate in words there are things that language is kind of inadequate to convey so I'm thinking things particularly about effect so the emotional quality of something also a lot of questions around the visual the nature of the visual text often you know just doesn't really get at that whereas art i think has the possibility to do that at the same time when i think of what artists do it's often about looking at something differently i think that's one of the what i love most about art is that it allows us to take something and turn it around and look at it from all different angles and kind of see something different about it and so i try to approach my research with the sensibility of an artist to see you know what would an artist make of this particular question Um, and by creating work what do I learn so I suppose what I do is I make things and I use that process of making things as a way of thinking through something Um, so when I was 
doing the, the work on folk um, for my PhD, it was about taking the conversations I was having with people and the field work I was doing, you know, in folk clubs uh, and eventually at carnivals and all different kind of locations that I kind of was identifying folk activities and reflecting on that through the work that I was making. And at the same time, I guess that the objects themselves become kind of storehouses of knowledge, that the objects themselves convey something in a way that text doesn't always. So I found that making artworks allows me to communicate my research to a wider audience, which is really great. You know, I, I do write uh, academic articles and I think I, I will never stop wanting to write uh, in that way. But it's fantastic when you're able to share some of the, the knowledge that, that you've been sort of gathering or, or you know, with, with a wider audience, and especially when you can share it with the people who've helped you out so much. So, I, so the social art side of it um, is that I, my practice as an artist is not so often about making objects. It doesn't always look like art, I guess. So socially engaged art is a relatively new phase within contemporary art where uh, it takes the realm of the social as the medium, as opposed to making an object, a painting, a sculpture, whatever. Um, it's about building relationships, it's about a process, it's a kind of conversation. And so the work that I've done has been getting together with people who, who I'm interested in, who do things that I'm interested in, producing an artwork together, you know, collaborating on something, and then using that as a way of generating knowledge. I mean, it automatically does generate knowledge when you do that kind of thing. But I'm always, as a researcher, I'm always trying to capture that and reflect on it and maybe put it down in writing or use it as a way of progressing the work. Does that make sense? I mean, one of the yeah. stories that I, one of the sort of apocryphal stories that I always say is that when I first started researching Carnival Morris dancing, which is one of the things that I suppose I've focused on the most in the last five, five to ten years, um, that... When I went in as uh, a researcher with a notepad and a, and a recording device and wanted to ask people questions about what they did, they were kind of understandably uncertain about what I wanted and it felt quite a formal relationship. It was quite difficult to get uh, interesting you know, information. But when I started taking interest in the material practices that the group were doing, the dressmaking, the kind of, you know, the, the artwork that they already made, it was just a fantastic way in and we could make things together and you know, it was just a, a role that I could take that allowed me to get to know people better and to really get at, I suppose, the aesthetic of that dance that has made it so very kind of different from other forms of Morris dancing, I suppose. See, as you mentioned Carnival Morris dancing there, I mean, I certainly had never come across that until I saw an exhibition you did a few years ago. Yeah. So I would imagine a lot of other people don't know what it is either. Could you just give us a bit of a summary? Yeah, sure. So Carnival Morris dancing uh, is a form of Morris that is particular to the northwest of England. It's performed primarily by girls and young women. Uh, it's highly, highly competitive. It functions almost like a kind of sporting league as opposed to a kind of performance that you would do, you know, for the sake of art. There are teams of dancers uh, and they compete weekly in competitions in big sports halls and community centres. And at the end of the year, there's a great big championship where all the teams get together and kind of battle it out to be the troupe of the year. It's performed pop music rather than live music. And its roots are in uh, carnival. So, and we, we talk about sort of the, the town carnival movement and that really began, I think, or it's generally considered to have begun in about the 1860s with Knutsford Royal May Day. And there was a real movement at that time for local 
towns to have big celebrations and it was to do with you know the, the rise of leisure time for working class people and the, the the train network being introduced that enable people to actually travel from town to town and enjoy themselves a little bit and local people would, would put on entertainments for each other and so there, was, there were all kinds of activities and it included morris dancing morris dancing was just one of many activities that would have taken place at your sort of 19th century carnival. Carnival Morris dancing is sometimes presumed to be, you know, a modern invention. It's sometimes seen as you know, kind of inauthentic for that reason. And my research generally would, would, would suggest that that's kind of not the case, that um, Carnival Morris dancing is about as old as any other form of Morris dancing that we have records, you know, clear records to, 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 to show. And that women have Morris danced in the Northwest since at least the 1890s and most likely before that time. I grew up, you know, my dad was a Morris man and he always told me when I was growing up that uh, women didn't do Morris dancing, it was a total abomination that there were any women doing Morris dancing whatsoever. And so I just remember when I first was looking in the archives, it was actually the Morris Ring archives and Duncan Broomhead was showing me all the, the photographs for the Northwest. And I just couldn't believe how many of these images were of, you know, groups of girls. And I was kind of thinking, well, what is this? For a start off, I was told this didn't exist and what is this? And my second question was, does it still exist? Are there still people doing this right now because it just seemed amazing to me that, that nobody would have you know, looked at this. So I spent a long time trying to make contact with people you know, in the Carnival Morris dancing community. You know, it turned out that there, there were still lots of people doing this, but they just hadn't, no one had really written about it or acknowledged it for a long time. And eventually I managed to make contact with people, uh, with a group called Orcadia Morris Dancers from Skelmersdale in West Lancashire. And they allowed me to go along to some practices and to go with them to the competitions that they have and eventually to go to the championships and it's a relationship that I still have, um, I still stay quite closely in touch with Orcadia and they are a fabulous Carnival Morris dancing team, they were at Dancing England this year at Nottingham Playhouse and I think that they've won the annual championships five times in a row, I think they may be on course to win their sixth which is amazing. So I, yeah, I, and, and what I also learned from the research that I did you know, with Carnival Morris was that Carnival Morris wasn't kind of the end of the story, that there are a whole bunch of performances that take place around the UK that, you know, have similar roots, similar age, similar social role, you know, a lot of the things that we associate with Morris dancing, but just for whatever reason, seem to be culturally invisible. We just don't know about them unless you're part of the group itself. You just don't know these things exist and for me that's really really exciting like it's a great opportunity to learn something new and yeah and, and the performances themselves are incredibly stunning and you know well worth looking into <laughs> if anybody hasn't seen them yet a quick youtube search it would you would not be disappointed sounds amazing um so you you mentioned that you're interested kind of in the definition of folk and kind of what it means today. So I'm really interested by this opening passage in your book. In fact, do you want to, do you want to read it to us? <laughs> oh, I can. Yes, this is very formal. I've never had a book reading before. So yeah, I, I, I start off with this, with this paragraph. Folk is a slippery and divisive term with some uncomfortable associations. However, for me, it doesn't represent a specific vernacular or style nor a set of rustic artefacts once gathered by Victorian collectors on bicycles and promptly preserved in aspic. It's what can happen when people, alone or together and regardless of anything, engage in cultural practices they create for themselves. Folk is here and now. That really kind of resonated with me, partly because uh, for my undergraduate dissertation, I was kind of considering whether the notion of folk song 
as a as an object made sense and I kind of differentiated it from folk singing as like an act of doing something in a situation with some words and a tune which don't necessarily have to be considered an object in and of themselves. Are you thinking along the same lines there? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. And I'm always a little bit concerned that when I sort of talk about my definition of folk that people might feel that I'm kind of denigrating the things that we do call folk. And that's not my intention at all. You know, I, I grew up on the outskirts of the folk scene and I've been involved in folk music in different ways for you know a long time and I still love folk music and dance and I still do it and you know I, I don't see that ever changing. I think what my view is that the way we define folk is quite narrow, it's quite limited and it just fails to embrace all of the different uh, practices that it might. Um, for me folk is really exciting because it's one of the few words I think which speak to the fact that people are creative that it's not about people having to become creative or that they need to do something differently it's about the creativities that people already have and everybody has that you know everybody has a community everybody is the folk the idea that the folk is a specific set of people who existed a long time ago and our job is to look back to those people and what did they do and now we re replicate that you know, you know to me is a kind of strange idea because you know, we are all part of folk communities now the, the kind of the, the canon of music and dance and song that we call folk is comparatively arbitrary you know we know that that people collected in a particular period we know that there were certain biases that informed the sorts of things that were collected you know I'm not looking to kind of point the finger and kind of go you know Cecil Sharp got it all terribly wrong he did a fantastic job in lots of ways it's not about that but um, you know but the body of, 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 of folk performance that we have received in the present day is only part of the story and there was always this assumption written into what folk was that project of the collectors in the 19th century that it was a finite thing you know it was going to run out you know the the, the, the fear was that this material was going to be lost you know the working classes who currently were performing it were not responsible enough to look after it and it needed middle class and upper class collectors to come along and and collect it and make sure that it could be safe and to ship it out to everybody else so that this material wouldn't be lost which means that today I hear it said quite often that you know there's nothing left to collect you know it's done the project's over and I kind of go how could that possibly be the case how could it possibly be that this drive to create this drive to entertain ourselves to make things for ourselves not only to consume what we're given but to actually do things for ourselves why would that impulse go away yeah. I, I think that's crazy so I, I think that the, the folk performances of you know the 20th and 21st century may look very different from those of the 19th century but it doesn't make them any less folk mm -hmm. and and that for me is what what's interesting you know to be looking for i do think that aesthetic plays a big role in in the way we kind of understand what folk is there's an assumption that folk looks a particular way that morris dancing looks a particular way and because girls morris dancing is performed by girls and because it's kind of evolved with the time so they wear kind of sparkly costumes and they dance to pop music and it's it's kind of stayed relevant and current within the community who practice it that somehow you know it, it doesn't meet this idea of what folkloricness should look like and you know obviously that's nonsense but do you think then that had the cecil sharps and the lucy broadwoods and all of those not kind of gone out and collected that, that we would actually be any the poorer at this point or would we just have something different to play with <laughs> i don't know i as i say my argument is definitely not with the collectors and i you know i love so much of the of the canon that that was collected and you know and i'm incredibly grateful for for what we have and i know that the kind of collecting if you want to call it that that i do now is equally partial and fragmentary and biased you know, of course it is i you know i do my best but 
I'm, I'm obviously not going to, you know, be without those kinds of problems and criticisms of what I do. So I, you know, I do think that, no, I, 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 of course I think we would be poorer not mm. to have those things, but I think we're, we're, we, we risk making ourselves poorer still if we ignore the stuff that's happening right now. And I think that's what my kind of argument generally is that, you know, well, people, because a lot, so a lot of folk scholarship is, is very historically based uh, and it's always about looking back to this group of people. And I should also say, I know what I was going to say. I was going to say that the people who, you know, the source singers, the source dancers, the Morris dancers that Cecil Sharp saw on Boxing Day 1899, they didn't call themselves folk dancers. They didn't know they were doing folk dance. They didn't, you know, say, oh, I'm going to go out and do this because I'm a folk performer and it's important to do this for my identity. Or, you know, they just did it because that's what they did. And yeah. that's what, that was what entertainment meant. And I think that there's a big difference between the kinds of, activity that we call folk today and just the stuff that we do the kind of customary practices the everyday informal uninstitutionalized arts and creativities that exist out there there's something different and that's not to say that folk uh, doesn't contain what I think of as folk so this, this is where it gets confusing so for me the things that are called folk performance today so going to a pub session uh, people sometimes think the reason that's folk is because we sing folk songs you know we're singing traditional songs and I kind of go yeah you know I get that but what's folk about that for me is that you've come together to make your own entertainment people have you know have created this community and they're going to sing together and play together and that's what makes it folk and that's what I love about it and it to me doesn't matter that much whether you're singing you know pop songs opera songs you know stuff from the tv you know, whatever it, it's not about the repertoire it's about the impulse to get together and do this as I say I do also love folk songs so you know this is not to to diss folk sessions I think that the point you made about um the the aesthetic I think is really interesting because I, I I find in a lot of these kind of debates there's a bit of a confusion between historical performance practice and tradition and you hear people lamenting that kind of all the the young musicians today aren't performing folk songs in in the not the correct way but you know the way it's always been done <laughs> but yeah you just think it's, but it's, we're not just trying to do the historical thing I, I guess Carnival Morris is a, a great example of this where it's it's not about trying to do the thing that's always been done it's about it's, it's kind of more about the intention behind it would you say yeah I think there's, there's always a kind of flawed assumption that tradition means that something doesn't change yeah. that it's about rep repetition you know, replicating the same thing over and over again and, and I, the ideal traditional process is one in which nothing ever changes at all and you know, everybody knows intellectually that that's a kind of impossibility we, you know you can't even even as a, as a musician you can't play the same piece the same twice and so goodness knows how we would expect that people you know year after year after year would sing without any change it's, it's a complete impossibility but tradition or kind of in within within folk I feel as though tradition is allowed to change a bit there's a kind of there's a kind of set amount that it's okay for tradition to change and when it goes beyond that then somehow it falls into this category of not being folk anymore and I think that's probably what's happened to Carnival Morris I think that perhaps while we are singing folk songs the kind of, we've got used to you know, the kind of Bob Dylan thing of you know playing the electric guitar and everyone shouts Judas you know okay we, we've, we've come to terms with the idea that folk can be played on modern instruments yeah. but what are the untouchable qualities that we associate with tradition and folk? And I think, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm, that's what I'm always interested in, is kind of, what do we have to do to get to that point where you suddenly go, okay, then this no longer counts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for me, Carnival Morris dancing is actually quite, a, it's quite an easy 
addition to the canon, you know, because actually it is historically coherent with Northwest Morris dancing. You know, it shares a lot of the same history, and it's quite easy to to prove that actually the neglect of Carnival Morris is based, at least in part, on kind of outdated gender ideas and attitudes. It's an easy addition because it does have that historical underpinning. But for me, I suppose certain certain folk practices that I look at don't have any historical <laughs> underpinning, and I, I don't know. You know, for me, that doesn't matter a great deal. Mm. I always think about when, one of the things I looked at in my PhD was long company mummers from the Ryburn Valley in Yorkshire. Um, and they have, you know, and they're, they're quite open about this. They, you know, they have invented a mumming tradition for the valley. They didn't historically, there wasn't historically a record of this, but they invented one. And it's become a really kind of central part of the calendar in that area. And you know, it's super popular and it's a fantastic kind of, incredibly visually spectacular mumming performance but you know does the fact that it's not old matter do do people who are involved in that practice do they care do the people who come and see it do they care that it's a new thing you know how old how long do you have to do something before it's considered to be legitimately traditional and I think they said it was basically two years you know once they've done it once the second time they did it everyone went wow this is amazing (laughs) this is what we always do here we do it every year and suddenly it becomes traditional so yeah it's um you know, it's always going to be a, a kind of <laughs> an imprecise thing. I don't know. I don't know how to say what I mean, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wonder with folk festivals and folk clubs in particular, whether that word folk is is more of a barrier than it is anything else, because it kind of it constructs these ideas of what it should or shouldn't be, and kind of excludes all the other stuff we've been talking about, which counts just as much. That's a really good point. I mean, so I think Dave Harker felt that there was no point trying to rehabilitate folk. You know, he felt that the term was so, you know, damaged and, and you know, flawed that it could never be useful, again, as a kind of scholarly term or, or as a term to represent, you know, a practice. I don't tend to agree with that. I feel like folk is too powerful a word not to rehabilitate. Um, and I think it's it's, you know, it's it's a great word. I think in this era of you know all the horrendous kind of social division and you know issues that we have going on, to actually resort to focusing on on our folkness, you know, on the things that we can share and make together, is something that's you know more important than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, whether I think that all of the things that I personally feel contain folkness that I'm interested in under that term folk, whether they should all be a part of folk festivals I don't know I don't know whether that would be what they would want and I don't know you know I I don't want to my I suppose mine is a kind of intellectual project and it is an artistic project I'm not looking to influence what the folk scene does because I think the folk scene is brilliant and I think it does fantastic things and I, and I think there's nothing wrong whatsoever with wanting to use a kind of shared body of, of songs and dances as a kind of excuse almost to get together and, and sing and dance and play I think that's you know for me that's what I suppose folk festivals are you know it, it it's the fact that this stuff belongs to us all it's a shared repertoire that you know once you're involved in the folk scene for a period of time you get to know these things really well and so you always have an entry you're always able to go and you know participate and I think that's fantastic I don't necessarily know that it needs to change dramatically from that I think I'm more interested in how it can be expanded kind of intellectually I suppose mm-hmm. um, so just thinking about the future a little bit, just thinking about social art in the age of 
technology and social media and Netflix and all the rest of it. Do you think that it's going to kind of carry on as we know? Are we are we are we going to keep making art together? Oh gosh, I mean, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, I, I'm I'm not somebody who views the internet as a kind of threat to to folk practice for sure, um, or to really any other kind of community making. I just think it it moves us to a different way of communicating and making making community with each other. Um, I mean, social art as a kind of genre within the contemporary art you know field is is very much on the rise and I think perhaps because of the kind of ubiquity of digital technologies um, kind of face-to-face activities are prized even more highly now you know I think we're aware that we, we've lost something a little bit mm-hmm. because of so much of our time is spent looking at screens so there's a real kind of push I think to do things you know together physically in the same room everybody you know, you know with your hands there's there's a real interest in that so I certainly don't see social art as a as a genre going anywhere anytime soon um and and ditto with with folk i I certainly think i think that the the folk arts of the the 21st century of the internet age are you know different um but they're not you know they're 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 formally different not substantively different Mm -hmm. if you know what i mean and for you personally what have you got coming up in the near future once this book is out into the world yeah, um, it's an interesting question. <laughs> so I've, I've just finished off a project uh, in Jersey called Chasing the Hare's Tail. And um, so it's an 18 month kind of residency, part time, 18 month residency at Jersey Heritage, Jersey Museum. And I was looking at the Battle of Flowers, which is a, an annual sort of street parade that takes place on the island of Jersey in the Channel Islands. And they make these amazing floral floats. And there's a practice that I was doing some research about called Hare's Tailing, which uses a, a plant called the Hare's Tail. Lagarus ovatus is the Latin name, and they dye it all kinds of colours, and then they make these kind of objects and pictures and displays that they use on the floral floats. Uh, but this practice is currently kind of a little bit under threat because uh, since the sort of 90s, environmental regulations have discouraged people from picking the plant locally, and it does grow fairly abundantly on the island, but it is located in areas of special scientific interest. And uh, so the, the groups who, who do this hair's tailing have been shipping them over from China, from wholesalers in China. Um, but there has been a global shortage and the costs have increased a lot and this means that fewer people are using hares tails in their work which seems kind of a pity because it's a unique thing to Jersey so I've been doing this project about sort of capturing the stories of people who do hares tailing finding out more about you know this issue with with cost and and, sustainability and I was doing some work to try and encourage people to grow hares tails in their gardens and fallow fields so there was a supply locally that could be used rather than having to to ship them from China and then when I was over a week or so ago I was doing some workshops at the museum uh, using locally grown hares tails that people had grown as a part of the project uh, to make kind of gifts that we then plan to send or give to the Chinese wholesalers because I'm really intrigued by how a local custom you know one of the most niche tiny local customs you've never heard of hares tailing I'd never heard of it this very very specific thing is actually being propped up by you know workers in another country and we often don't think about how you know the things that we do are so implicated in you know the flows of global capital and you know, labor in, in other places you know we're all so connected mm. um, so I wanted to do some work on that and one of the kind of outcomes of that, well, two things. One is that I'm going to be putting in a, an application to the Heritage Craft Association to get hairs tailing recognised as a kind of endangered craft because so far it's, it's just one of those things that, as with many of the things I'm interested in, falls below the radar and no one's really heard of it. 
And two, um, I'm trying to get some funding to go over to China with some of the hare's tailors so that we can actually go to where the hare's tails are being grown in Yunnan um, province and sort of meet the people who are growing them and maybe do a project together, maybe make some, some work together to sort of acknowledge that, that implicatedness of, of a local custom in a kind of wider global commercial environment. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe that's what I'll be doing in future. I'll most likely be in this office though, <laughs> writing and answering emails, because that's what I spend a lot of my time doing. <laughs> At least you like it, thank you very much. No worries. Thank you very much to Lucy and to you for listening. Do get yourself a copy of Lucy's book. It's a really beautiful piece of work available at Lucy's website, artistic-researcher.co.uk. I'll be back in a few weeks' time with another fascinating guest. This podcast is produced by Greenwood Site, an organisation dedicated to having more conversations about where the folk scene is at and where it's going. If you want to share your thoughts on anything you've heard in this podcast, you can drop us an email at podcast at greenwoodside.co.uk or find us on Twitter at Greenwoodside UK or look up Greenwoodside on Facebook. To find out more about any of this, please visit greenwoodside.co.uk.